0: hadn't processed the trauma I didn't know how to process the trauma and it would take many years to figure that out but it was creeping out in my body in other ways because in my experiences that the truth lives in our bodies and we can try and run away from that when we don't process it but at some point it, it comes back to bite you.
1: So when this week's guest, Samantha Page, walked into a gynecologist office when she was 21 years old, she did not expect to walk out having a potential diagnosis of thyroid cancer. But that, in fact, ended up being her reality. She went through successful treatment, but... The trauma remained embedded in both her physical body and her psyche for many years. She reflected on her own diagnosis and then her mother's diagnosis of breast cancer when Samantha was very young and decided that she would eventually get tested for what's become known as the BRCA gene. She tested positive and as a new mom made a decision to have a double mastectomy and then reconstructive surgery. A couple of years down the road from there, she also then made the decision to reverse the reconstructive surgery and have implants removed. She documented this entire process in something called Last Cut Project, where she and her friend Lisa created this powerful visual photo documentary and shared it with the world. You can actually find that. We'll link to the Instagram account and launched a podcast series to share similar conversations about people processing their own identity and redefining it and stepping into a place of power and agency and defying very often cultural norms. That podcast, by the way, is called Final Cut Conversations. She kind of exploded in a much bigger way into the public consciousness when Equinox featured her in a massive international ad campaign and showed a picture of her as redefining what we see as beauty and power and strength and identity. And that led her to literally walk out her door and see massive billboards with her on it. And it led to a bigger public conversation about all of these ideas. So I wanted to sit down with Samantha and explore her journey, her story, the shifts that have been made along the way, and also how that relates to her being a mom to a daughter and having the conversations with her. Really excited, as always, to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project.
2: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
1: If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash Project to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash Project, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Growing up in LA, what kind of kid are you?
0: Oh my. Well, I was kind of kid I was, I don't know if it had to do so much with with my physical environment as much as it did with, I was just a perfectionist. Mm. And so I-
1: How did that manifest?
0: I think it manifested, my mom had breast cancer when I was, I think about four. My parents got divorced. I lost my grandfather. That all happened within the span of a year. Mm. And I think my reaction was just to try and be perfect and hold it all together. And it wasn't asked of me at four, five, but I think that's, that was my reaction to what was happening in my world. So it's funny growing up in LA, I feel as if I academically was, I was a straight A student. I was this goody two shoes on paper and you know, as as my, what my parents thought. And, and later my mom said to me, she's like, well, you got, you know, you got good grades, you did your thing and whatever else you did, you kept everything else together. And so I, I, I had a lot of fun, had an engaged life in the city as well, but definitely was also very academic and kind of nerdy too. So I sort of had these two sides.
1: Do you think the perfection thing was more of like, like control after feeling like there was so much loss that you didn't have control over?
0: Yeah, I think for sure.
1: Yeah. I feel like that's it for a lot of people because f- it's interesting. I feel like there's this, these days it's coming out a lot more. There's sort of like this conversation around perfectionism. And how it can be massively destructive as much as it gives you this sense of, okay, I've got all my stuff dialed in. I think we'll probably circle back to that in a bigger way.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really, it's, that's a huge point. And I think that that became a big part of my journey, actually, because it was, it was holding it together.
1: Did that, because often I've seen that coupled with sort of like heightened anxiety at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're like, yes,
0: you're, I'm
1: like, yep. the, the eyebrow <laughs> rays, <race laughs> the head is like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh-huh.
0: yes. I definitely I had a lot of anxiety as a kid, for sure. As a kid, it manifested more. I had a lot of stomach aches. I think that, I mean I've seen that with my daughter too. Things you don't necessarily feel it so much in in the head per se here you know, or in, but it it's in the body. And so my stomach always hurt. And and I think then as I got older, it manifested more in anxiety. And certainly after I had had cancer. And then realized that really nothing, you know, I had cancer at 21. And so my senior year of college, I was diagnosed with cancer. After feeling perfect, it kind of came out of nowhere. And so it was very rattling to this sort of controlled life that I was living to then all of a sudden realize that really nothing's in control.
1: Yeah. All right. So so take me there. Take me. So you end up, you're in college.
0: I was in college. I had actually just returned from studying abroad in Italy, which... I had gone with my parents, with my mom and my stepdad when I was, I believe, 12 to Italy and to. we went to Paris. My stepdad did a lot of work over there, In one trip they took us. And I remember being in Italy and hearing everyone—we were stuck in a traffic jam, but everyone just seemed so happy and, and, and animated that I, I, I said to myself, I have to come back here. I have to learn this language. So my junior year of college, I did that. And so I had just returned from that experience and was really establishing my independence and, and felt great. It was sort of a high point, I would say, in my life. Went to my gynecologist and, and my internist for, for checkups before we're returning to college for my senior year, and my gynecologist Examined my neck, which I didn't remember him ever doing that before. And he said, you know, I'm feeling something on your thyroid.
1: What made him examine your
0: neck in the I'm first not day? really sure. Still to this day, I'm not, you know, 21 yeah. years later, I'm not exactly sure. But it was sort of one of those divine interventions that he did. And he ended up then sending me to a specialist for a biopsy. And it turned out I had a malignant tumor. Which was just crazy because I felt great. And so within the span of two weeks, my whole life was just sort of turned right upside down
1: yeah what did that mean to you also in that moment, because of your history when you were a little kid and what you saw around you in your family?
0: It was obvious i mean it was it was it was scary and and frightening, and I think I went more into the space of what we were talking about before what which was i'm gonna be strong, it's okay you know, people told me, oh, well, at least you, you know, this was one of the most insane things that people said, but at least you didn't get one of the cancers that will kill you. And I was like, right, but it's still cancer. My life was still disrupted. So I think I really went into that place of holding it together and strength and optimism, which in the end came back to bite me horribly. But I think having seen what my mom had gone through, having watched my grandfather, you know, pass away from cancer, certainly there was an added weight to it and fear, but I don't know that in that moment I went there to even dismantle it or feel it through. I think it was too scary. And that was sort of what then just kept building on itself for the years thereafter.
1: Also, I mean, you're 20, 21 years old at that point?
0: Uh, not today. I was like, wow, no, right, thanks. Ba- back then. <laughs> yes, I was 21. Right. I just turned Coming 21. Coming back from
1: junior year in college. Yeah. It's hard enough to sort of like handle what you're going through from a health standpoint, from your own mindset standpoint, but the social dynamic like around that, even like when you're a grown up, when you're in the world, you have like deep, long friends. When you're when you're that age, and people really, you know, we're kind of like in st- just figuring out ourselves. Also, yeah. that socially, that had to have been like, tell me, <laughs> tell yeah. me what's going on because nobody knows what to say. Or what to do, and especially at that age, like we're not even equipped to deal with regular day to day stuff for the most part.
0: No, and I think that that's such an amazing point that you just made because I don't think at any age people are equipped, and I think we 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 try and stay in the positive because we think that's what's going to make people feel better. But what I really discovered was that as humans, we have this full spectrum of emotions that we have to explore so we can feel whole and so that we can heal and move through things and that it's really challenging to to get that from people because they're distraught about what you're going through so they're just trying you know people want to make it feel better and so i felt really alienated i mean my best friend from college was amazing and we would talk but she wanted me to feel okay i mean my mom everybody wanted me to be okay and so i would go up to my room. And I was in my childhood bedroom, which that at age you know, 21, as you want to be in your senior year of college, was <laughs> rattling it in of itself. But I would just go into my room and cry because out, outside of that space, I just tried to put on a happy face because that's what I thought people wanted from me.
1: Mm. So even at that point, you're still thinking about what people want from you.
0: Yeah. that it It, it, it came after that, that I really then dismantled the the people pleasing aspect of my my makeup and and also just realize that we're all we're all different and we all feel different things at different times and that there's nothing wrong with that and there's no shame in that and that I think vulnerability I later learned it, it it's not a sign of weakness it's really a sign of incredible strength
1: yeah and also just like saying to I mean from you out saying to your friends and family. I, I don't know how to behave right now. And also having the safety and the space for them to be able to say to you rather than, you know, like, let me figure out what I can say to make it better. Like, I I love you, but I have no idea how to have this conversation. I don't know what you need. Like, what do you need? What do we, do you need me to just shut up and be here? Do you need me? Like, right. I think we're just, we, we don't, we're terrified of even like just asking those questions. We just mm-hmm. kind of want to assume.
0: Yeah. No, we yeah, I think we do. We we make assumptions and it's funny my mom and I have have conversed about this one. We recorded an episode for for my podcast last year right around Mother's Day and really talked about all of this. And she and I had very distinct memories, very very distinct and very different memories of that time related to this issue and it was really interesting cuz I remember asking her if she thought I should go to therapy. You know, do you think I should be talking to someone about this? And and she said, you know, you seem great. And so that's where I think I wasn't asking. I wasn't showing and I wasn't asking. And that's what I learned later is that there's incredible strength in in, in doing exactly what you just said. Like I don't know how to handle this and and meet me in that space versus trying to show up how we think we're supposed to be and to sort of tough and you know be strong strong and, and tough it out. Her memory, or a memory that I had then of her, was that she had told me that she would go and go for drives and then pull over and cry on the side of the road. And she doesn't remember telling me that part. I mean, it was, it's so, it, I think that when there's incredible pain that's happening, we do our best. Certainly, I know everyone around me was doing their best, and I think that sometimes it takes time to then learn how we wish we would have asked for help in those situations, mm. yeah, with, you know with,
1: and meanwhile everyone's going through their own corners of the room and crying in solitude,
0: yeah, right, which looking back, it's really sad, and I wish you know I wish I would have known more of what her experience was because I think, having gone through what she went through. And then having this happen to you know she was in her early 30s when she had cancer, and then I was in my early 20s. I know that that was a heartbreaking experience as a mother. I mean, I can't imagine in my own experience now as a mother what that would feel like.
1: Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Have you had that that specific conversation with her at this point?
0: We've we've touched upon it. Yes, we've definitely gone there to places. I mean, now with sort of the the next. As the next phase of what you know, what I've done with the work with Last Cut, she and I have been pushed to have conversations that I think we weren't having before, and at first it was challenging and uncomfortable. And I think she's an incredibly private person too, which I am as as well. Even though I'm so public about so many parts of my life, that's probably hard to, hard to imagine, but. We worked through it together over these last two years, and our relationship has, has grown and deepened in a really beautiful way because I've been sharing of myself so much, and she's met me in that space.
1: Yeah, which is amazing. So you go through treatment for thyroid cancer. Everything comes out okay? Yes. Just go about your life after that? Or are you different in some way?
0: Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah, I had my thyroid removed. I had one round of radioactive iodine therapy, and then was able to go back to finish my senior year. They didn't want me to graduate because I had then been away from college or, you know, away from the campus for too long. And I petitioned and was able to then walk with my class, had another round of radiation after graduating. And then at that point, I said, okay, my life has completely been dismantled. What can I do that will make me happy? And so I didn't want to just go and get a job, you know, at, at Merrill Lynch or just a corporate. It's sort of my sh- my thinking did shift pretty dramatically about what I thought I wanted or should do. So I've, I got an internship actually in Italy and went back to Italy and and was going to be there for three months and figured I just bought myself some time to figure out what's next and just process everything. Uh, I was working at a school there, cooking school, and I would then ended up shortly after I arrived, they said, oh, well, you know, you're— Qualified to do this? Do you want to teach English as a second language to Italian adults? So, one thing led to another. I ended up being there for two and a half years. And what happened was, I was again, sort of during the day, living this life that I loved. I was in this place that I loved. I had this really sweet boyfriend. I loved my job. I got to travel with my job, I was meeting amazing people. I wasn't sleeping at night though, and I would just sit in the darkness of what I hadn't processed all night. And so I would, it was the first time I started to get panic attacks. I started to get migraines. And I still, though, wasn't able to do again what you alluded to before of just saying, this is happening and I don't know where to go with it. And I don't know, I don't know how to be. I just, I'd be up at night. And I remember there was one particular instance where my boyfriend's family was they i think they were going to a mass or something for easter and we had had dinner and it's funny cuz I mean, I grew up Jewish, but I loved being in Italy because the the ceremony of how they do religion is just fascinating to me. It's funny.
1: I I grew up Jewish also. And like my favorite thing was to go down the block to like our big Italian friends, family for like the holidays. Like, this is
0: awesome. It's amazing. I think in part, it feels so similar. Yeah, I think so. in many ways, certainly the celebration and the familial aspect. But so that night though, I had this knot in my chest and I couldn't breathe. And I said, I'm just going to stay. And I- laid in bed. And I I realized, I think in that moment that I wasn't okay and that I hadn't processed the trauma. I didn't know how to process the trauma and it would take many years to figure that out. But it was creeping out in my body in other ways because in my experiences, the truth lives in our bodies and we can try and run away from that when we don't process it. But at some point it, it comes back to bite you.
1: Yeah, and it's funny, I think I completely agree with that. I think sort of like modern therapy for trauma is really starting to address that now. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who's doing this incredible work on um, post-traumatic. Everyone's changing the last two letters in that, but it's kind of saying like, you, you can't actually unwind this unless you unwind it within the physical body as well.
0: Exactly. And that's, you know, it took probably another 10 years for me to really get there. And later, I mean, and there was a lot more that happened in my 20s with my body, but, you know, got, went and had the genetic testing for the BRCA gene and tested positive for that. And so for
1: those who don't know what that is, share more.
0: So the BRCA gene, and there are two different mutations that you can test, and it's essentially a genetic mutation, a marker that shows a, a heightened risk for breast ovarian and other sort of reproductive cancers i think it's spoken about most in women but certainly you know men can have the mutation as well and it happens to be more prevalent in the jewish population and so because of my mom's history and then when i was had had thyroid cancer it had been recommended that i get tested just so that I, they knew how they should be tracking my my health and so i did that tested positive. My stepfather was then diagnosed with cancer. And I, at that point, was just, you know, had not processed the trauma that had happened in the body and was then suffering from debilitating migraines and panic attacks. So, I mean, probably 12 years ago, I could have never sat in the studio with you. I just, I couldn't be in a closed space without completely losing it, both mentally and physically. And so, Later on, actually after I then, you know, so a lot of people who get diagnosed just back to the BRCA thing because it then relates so much to my story, to the BRCA gene, I tested positive. I then was dealing with heightened or going and having MRIs or mammograms every three months, which, given my history, was added, you know, fuel to the fire of all of this anxiety. When my daughter was born, I decided that I didn't want to deal with living that way anymore and then I wanted to be more proactive about my health and so I decided to have a preventive double mastectomy and I did that when she was about eight months old and it was after that surgery that I remember calling my internist one day when I was driving and I pulled over the car because I felt that same feeling I had felt when I was you know lying in bed in Italy 10 years before and and said I'm not okay and I need help, and I'm ready to get help, and I don't want to live my life this way anymore. And she sent me to the psychiatrist, and I was finally actually diagnosed with PTSD. And that was the term that was, you know, <laughs> applied to me. And so, and that was my best diagnosis yet. I mean, being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder made me feel as if I'm not crazy because I felt as if I just wasn't trying hard enough to be a normal person. You know, I'd healed from all of these things and moved on, but yet I was, you know, completely going backwards in so many other ways.
1: And this is PTSD that would have been related all the way back to when you were twenty-one mm-hmm. or earlier.
0: I mean, probably all of the above, but I think, I think it. I mean, it's also linked, right? Right. I so, mean, in a way
1: you could even probably link it back to when your mom was diagnosed initially when yeah. you were four.
0: Because I know when we first moved to l a and my mom took my brother and myself to go and have just an initial meeting with a child psychologist, and again, it was like, "Okay, you no, know, good to go, she's great, and so I think I was a really I was really good at holding it together, and I think that right all then finally all of these different things had happened, and even before I actually had the PTSD diagnosis, I remember being at another therapist's office. And I, I could almost see within my mind this like welling up that went so far back of sadness and fear and anxiety around wellness and health and everything being okay. And I remember saying, you know, and and this woman said to me, it's okay, just let it go. Just start to feel it and, and tap into it. And I just, that was my, I remember saying to her, I think it will kill me. Like, I think I will die if I start to feel all of this. And so, right, it wasn't until maybe five years later that then I knew that was the only way that I was going to be able to live was to actually unravel that and feel it. And and it was, it was going back through through all of it because it was all related.
1: What is it like when you actually start to let yourself feel that?
0: It's terrifying and it's liberating and i think the best indicator of what happens when you start to feel everything or and and to to look at it and talk about it is you start to feel i start to feel different in my body there's an immediate visceral response of relaxation And it doesn't mean that you've figured everything out, that you've just, you know, muttered or or cried out. But there's a visceral release that happens when you at least acknowledge whatever it is that's being held back. And that's liberating. And that then started to inform everything about my life. And so that was my early 30s. I mean, I had the double mastectomy when I was 32.
1: And then you started therapy like right around the same age or?
0: Yeah. I mean, I had been in therapy many other times and had great therapists that had helped me through pieces. But I think, you know, I I hadn't gotten there with sort of the, the, the giant elephant in, in the room. And so at this point, there was right this moment of breakthrough that then led. So, right, I started therapy and, and worked with someone for a couple of years, two or three years, and also then started doing other alternative things as well that supported that and helped with my healing and so i yeah i am trying to think it, it, my 30s were such an interesting decade because here i had a young baby when she was two i actually started a jewelry company and then sort of on the side was had this whole other almost i really call it a job of finally looking within and trying to figure out how i wanted to live the rest of my life and from that experience of sort of on the side or not i don't know if i'd even say the side because i think in many ways it was the main event was trying to figure myself out selling a little or a lot
1: Its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all new Lexus GX luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
0: Then I got to this moment where okay, there are a lot of things in my life that I have said yes to that I probably should have said no to, and that was where I. And that was really then later, last cut was born from from that moment of what are the things that we've either have happened in our lives to us or, or we've agreed to that then when we have a greater consciousness about who we are, realize that we need to reorient. And so it's those moments of significant decision where you have to sort of say, okay, wait, I went left. I probably should have gone right. <laughs> How do I reorient? And so I then had another few years of really pulling apart many aspects of my life.
1: Yeah. I mean, so powerful and at the same time you're a mom of a of a new baby girl and you're trying to support yourself as an entrepreneur it sounds like and, yeah. and an artist mm-hmm. and you've got this other full-time job yeah. of deconstructing your psyche and rebuilding it and your physical body to a certain extent because oh, okay. the trauma you've been through physically is profound.
0: Oh, no, I mean, I've had six major surgeries. And the last one, right, I mean, I had my chest cut open twice when I had a newborn baby. I mean, new, not quite newborn, but, yeah, under-one-year-old child who I couldn't then pick up for four months, mm-hmm. which, I mean, talk about trauma. That <laughs> There's been a lot. I mean, it's taken a lot. I had to get myself in order to end up being able to show up as a good mother. But the beginning was a rough start. And the timing, you know, to a certain degree sucked, but I think sometimes you know, hindsight's 2020 20, and we're doing our best always and
1: but also at the same time it sounds like and tell me if this is if this is true to you, the f- it was the fact of becoming a mother that became sort of like the final straw in you saying, okay.
0: Yeah. It was, and actually, I mean, not to go into any great detail about my actual birth of my daughter, but I had actually had a very healthy pregnancy, which, given everything that my body had gone through, was a shock to me and a gift. And I I mean, I didn't get a single migraine during my pregnancy, and nothing was ever wrong. I mean, it, it was one of those things where I was always expecting the worst from my body, like you know, because I always, I fell into the, you know, I was the 0.00475 percentage of what could go wrong with a medication, with, you know, whatever it is. And so my daughter gave me that gift. And then I actually got a migraine the day before she was due and went to the hospital thinking, okay, I just have a migraine. I've done this dance before. And they said, no, actually, you're starting to go into labor. And I was diagnosed with late onset preeclampsia, which, is hyperinduced or uh, or pregnancy induced hypertension and the you know your, the mother's blood pressure goes up and your liver can start to fail yeah, it can be
1: life threatening
0: it's very dangerous yeah. so my blood pressure was through the roof which for me is highly unusual and they so the doctor the specialist came in and wanted me to have a C-section and my mom and my now ex-husband but my husband at the time were looking at me and they're like okay let's just get this baby out and i said no There was something within me. My daughter, again, it was this this gift. There was something within me that I knew it was going to be okay. And so for 19 hours, because that's what happened, it was 19 hours of the medical staff coming in, my family, everybody looking at me and and, saying—and my my liver markers were going through the tubes. I was on all of these other drugs. They had given me Pitocin. I mean, it was a disaster and a nightmare— but somehow I just had this faith that it was going to be okay. Like I knew that she and I were going to be okay. And I kept pushing them off. And I ended up, I was able to deliver her you know, without a C-section. And it was that. It was that moment where I thought, okay, I can do this. I can change. I can show up differently for this little person because I'm not broken. There's still something within me that, that there was just this like little twinkle of trust in my body and that's when I thought okay I have to do this differently for her and it took a lot of time and a lot of heartache you know as being a mother because there were elements of that that probably I mean it were not it was ultimately everything but selfish the decisions that I were making but I mean I was it was early in the marriage I mean it was all of it and I was at this point where I was like okay I've got 15 years Maybe, you know, if we go back to when I was five, this is a lot of stuff I need to pull apart to learn how to be in relationship with myself, let alone to know how to show up for someone else.
1: So you end up, you're a new mom, you're newly empowered in, in an interesting way yeah. to process all of this stuff. And you're also going through not just recovery from being a mom and from childbirth, but also where where in here was the mastectomy. So sort of like in the timeline.
0: My daughter was born in 2007, May, 2007. And I had the double mastectomy in January of 2008 and then had the reconstructive surgery in I think April of 2008. So all of that before her first birthday.
1: Yeah. What made you feel like it was time to have the double mastectomy at that moment?
0: think in part it was the anxiety of the testing and just constantly being in fear and wanting to just step into having that behind me and having, mm. again, it was, I think within me, it was, it was this sensation of, I want to take back my own power over my body.
1: Yeah. And maybe again, the follow through from that decision at birth saying, okay.
0: Exactly.
1: More, no, exactly. more agency, more agency, more agency.
0: Because I think, it you know, it happens so often- when we're diagnosed with something we're not medical experts and so then you're you're seeking counsel from the people that you think and often do know what what's best for you but there's there's certainly a huge loss of power in that within the self and trust in in the self and the body and certainly I mean I dealt with chronic pain and the migraines and the anxiety then for 10 years and was on so many medications and that was a complete loss of agency and and loss of autonomy and so that experience of birthing my daughter in such a profound way it did give me it it connected me back to that place within myself that where i thought okay what do i want what's going to make me feel more whole moving forward is it you know and going back you know then having done the work that i've done now looking back i was you know it's such a personal decision, and that's where I think for other individuals who have been diagnosed with, with the BRCA mutation, I would never say you should do this because it, everything's so personal. I mean, even when then I went and I initially elected to have reconstruction and then ended up taking out the implants, it's so personal, and I think that for me, it was this moment of, okay, I'm finally tapping into knowing what, what I need yeah. so that I can be living a fulfilled life and a happy life where I feel connected and feel as if I'm in my body and integrated.
1: Yeah, so tell me what happened. What was it that I think I have better sense for you know the decision leading up to the double mastectomy? Mm-hmm. But then months later, you chose, and, and then you had reconstructive surgery, which mm-hmm. included... Putting in implants, then he decided to take them out. So tell me about this.
0: Okay, so well, when I elected to have the double mastectomy, the options of for not getting implants and not doing reconstruction aren't as well publicized as getting the implants. And at that moment, you know, old habits die hard. So yes, I was starting to dismantle all of these things, but I also was a couple years into a marriage and had been told when we went into the doctor's appointment that, you know, these implants are what most—most women feel most normal with these implants. And so it was like, you know, choice A or choice B. And, you know, most men think this one feels more normal and more real. I mean, so the whole thing was, looking back, completely surreal. And I was still— dismantling, yes, but not completely tapped back into who I was, you know, pre-cancer diagnosis, Mm. living in Italy, you know, at age 21, where I always have been this free spirit and artist and very clear on who I was. But at this point, I still am a new mom and I'm, you know, back living in Southern California. And what's it going to look like? You know, what do I want to look like? What's going to feel most sort of, you know, I'm already doing something that was fairly cutting edge at that point. And so I I opted for for the implants that I was told would make me feel best and most normal. And,
1: and and it was the options for you were implant A or implant B. There wasn't like a C option, which is what if there was no implant?
0: Right. No, I mean, that really wasn't, it was not ever presented to me or you could do nothing. And I remember asking, cause I had known through just being in that world that some women use their own body fat and do, it's a much more extensive surgery, but that you can use your own body fat to, to construct breasts. And I he, I didn't have enough to work with, <laughs> basically, the doctor said. So I remember I had, there was this whisper within me that was like, ask what what else? There has to be something else. And so I asked about, well, can we use my own, you know, my own cells? And that was not an option. And so I was like, all right. And I went, you know, there was basically, impl- it was the saline, which has silicone around it or silicone. And they, these gummy, they're called gummy bear implants, the ones that I had. So I went with that and, you know, it required you then get these expanders and have to go and you get saline pumped into them for four months after you've had the double mastectomy so that the skin can handle it. And then you go in and they take out the expander implants and put in the real ones. So, I mean, it's two massive surgeries. It was horrifically painful. (laughs) Yeah, it was really, it was horrible. One of my best friends was diagnosed with breast cancer recently and is now doing great, but then had to have a double mastectomy after going through chemo for seven months. And it was really hard for me because, again, you want to be encouraging. and But I just, I was like, here, I have to call it and I have to be honest with you. Like, this is going to be really painful and you will get through it. But you should know that it's, yeah, it's intense. It's, you know, our lungs are underneath our breasts and our heart is there. And so all of our, you know, you go to draw a breath. And you, I felt as if I had been run over by a Mack truck, you know, 10 times. And I have a very high threshold for pain because, <laughs> you know, chronic migraines. I mean, I had a migraine that lasted for a month once. I mean, so it, it's painful. But I, you know, signed up, did the second surgery. And, you know, looking back, I can't exactly—I ended up, again, and it's sort of—this was really one of the last things that I ended up dismantling and, and really looking at— <laughs> Because, you know, I went with the party line, which was what I had heard around me, which, oh, well, I won't have to wear a bra when I'm 90. And I did. I had these enviable tits that everyone was like, these are amazing. You're so lucky. You breastfed, and now you don't have to wear a bra. And, you know, and they were, I don't know why. I went, I was, I went for, let's go for the biggest ones we can do just because we're doing it. And again, this was all of the societal stuff. You know, what then happened was years later, I ended up, Getting a divorce, I ended up closing my jewelry company because it had. I had started it from a really authentic place of I'd always made jewelry and been very artistic my whole life. And had started a company from that spirit, grew it to be something bigger because that's I come from a family of entrepreneurs and that's what you do and that's a sign of success. And was selling to 60 stores worldwide, and Amazon had picked it up and all of this, and I opened a a retail store in in Santa Barbara. And then one day I realized, oh, my goodness, I'm not an artist anymore. I'm running this business. I'm dealing with the business end of things. And within the span of, you know, I had been thinking about it a long time, but in a span of a month, closed the company. So I had done that. I moved. I then had another relationship that went sour and walked away from that. And so then really had this, you know, moment of, okay, I turned over everything at that point. And the implant issue didn't really come up. I had a friend come over after New Year's Eve in 2016. And she said, you know, I'm having my implants out because I think they're making me really sick. I was like, oh, and at the time, I had been—I had six months been suffering with a MRSA staph infection that I couldn't get rid of. And still, like, I had done all of this stuff. I had cleared out my life in so many ways and simplified it and felt really great. But there still were some physical things. The second she said that, I was like, oh, my goodness. These things have to go. And that was when I founded Last Cut. I called up my best friend, Lisa Field, who's a photographer. I said, will you photograph me for a year? I don't know why, but I think we need to photograph this. And I'm calling my doctor tomorrow, and I'm driving to L.A., and I'm going to ask him to take these implants out. He did a beautiful job, but I think these things are making me sick. And beyond that, I don't want them anymore. And so the the documentary was born in that moment, and two weeks later I had the implants out. And I remember waking up and even though it had been another surgery, waking up and feeling this incredible sense of freedom and an incredible sense of—it was just the culmination of everything that had been happening for that really almost 10 years before of getting clear on where I had said yes and I should have said no and all the last cuts that led up to this one, which felt— I don't know if I would say it was the biggest one, but it certainly was the metaphor for everything that I had done in my life. And that's where then the project was born. And I decided to go out and talk to other people about their last cuts and the decisions that they were making to line up their internal world with, with the external.
1: So two weeks later, immediate sense of freedom, a huge shift. We talked about how people around you struggle when you make decisions or when you're going through something like back when you were 21 and don't know how to respond to it. What was happening in your life between you and your family conversations, you and friends when you made this decision and then did it. And was it a factor in?
0: There were many different, (laughs) many different conversations that were, were challenging. I think my mom thought it was crazy. was single at the time. I still am. And so I think again, being in that role of mother this idea, you know, so I had the implants removed with this and then was going completely flat, just to give the context, the visual context to to then the decision that I was walking into. And I was told when I met with the doctor, he said, "I'm more than happy to do what and support you and whatever you want, but just know you've now had these things on your chest for nine years. You might even be concave. You know, this we're not, we're not. It's it's a different thing. And so, I think that my mom was definitely." trepidatious and 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 scared a little bit for me. My dad and my stepmom were very supportive. They had been there for a moment in the hospital when I first had my double mastectomy. They were with me when I first looked at my chest. And so everyone had been along for the ride, but they said, "Okay, this is great. Whatever you need to do and made sense to them, you know, this is the part that the part that maybe the silicone was making me not feel well." And so they, you know, they get behind it. And I think everyone there were some who were immediately supportive and said, You do you. And oh, I think you're actually going to look better. And, you know, because I have a really small frame and I had these enormous implants. Like looking back at the photos, I realized how much I had disassociated from my body mm-hmm. in so many ways. So, yeah, I had a lot of feedback. And I think most important is the second part of your question, which was, how did I react to that? And did it influence me? And this time it didn't.
1: Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing. And I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off that bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
0: This time I I was able to stand strong in those conversations and explain the why of the decision with confidence and excitement and not attach the outcome to the feedback I was getting. And it was an incredible, this whole experience of the last two years of writing about having the implants removed and the conversations that I've been having around that and then the similar thing of other people's last cuts, it really made me realize all of the work that we have to do to get back to that place of being able to navigate the big moments in our lives with our own compass. Because I think, yes, we have our people, you know, I have my best friends that I seek advice, but at the end of the day, they can't, tell me what to do. My, my family can't tell me what to do. I can't outsource what's right to do to society or anyone else. I have to find that place within that guides me to the right decision. And so the last two years have, have been evidence of of my coming into my own in in that realm.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting because you get to a point where also nobody can live with the consequences, but you. So it's at the end of the day, it's like Whatever the decision is, like it's, it's my body that benefits or takes the hit. It's my life that benefits or takes the hit. And no matter what anybody else says may be right for them or what they feel is right for me, only I live with the consequences, good or bad. Yeah. You made a really interesting decision, though, which is the decision to, the moment you knew that you were going to do this, to not keep it to yourself, to not only make your decision and process public in a very visual way but to invite other people's stories into it and from what i know of you what you've shared with me before is you're a pretty fiercely introverted human being yeah what's behind that shift what's behind because that's got to be like a very vulnerable decision to make especially at that moment in
0: time incredibly so and gosh I think that there was something in it. I was so clear when I made the decision that there was almost an otherworldly force that came with that, which sounds really woo-woo. But I knew that there was more to talk about and more to share about my experience than just the fact that I was having the implants removed. And so it was different than, I mean, so many people share when they're going through cancer treatment or going through things in in a very public manner because it does it creates community and it creates support and i didn't necessarily feel certainly i felt the support was important i didn't need the support to hold me up because i had really gotten there really strongly but i just i i had a hunch that there was something more to my broader healing that was going to come through talking about this because it was tied to what had come before it, which again, because I'm so private, I hadn't talked about sort of a lot of the, the, the last cuts that had happened in my life leading up to the clarity around this decision. And so Lisa and I had been talking about collaborating for a while and I don't know. I mean, she was, you know, one of my best friends, I called her to talk about about the the surgery, and we had wanted to collaborate, and so i I don't know it was just I just had an intuition about it, and I think in part it was to create community in part it was to normalize and and show and give support to others for these big decisions that require a massive landing within yourself to navigate what society tells you you should do or what your family tells you you should do. Or what the voices in our heads tell us, should I, you know? I mean, it's, forget everybody else out there. I mean, we all have those voices within that say, are you sure? Maybe you should do this, or maybe that is normal. And so I think it it was this opportunity to really step into it and to to shine light on the decision-making process as much. And I also had no clue where it would lead. And so... Initially, Lisa was just following me around with her camera, you know, or in the doctor's office with her iPhone <laughs> to take pictures to document it. And I don't, I think initially I didn't know if it was just, I mean, I obviously put it up on Instagram, but and started writing about it, but I, I don't think I knew. And within maybe three months after I had healed from the explant, it became really clear the more that Lisa and I had pulled apart all of the dis- different issues ar- around the explant. Just how much, and I already alluded to this before, just how much it really was a metaphor for what we're all going through all the time. And sometimes it's really simple ways. Like, should I eat this or should I not? And it's just like tap back into what you need for you so that you're doing what feels right so that you can go out and be of service in the world. And that was when I decided, okay, I want to go out and talk to other people. And we started the podcast and, you know, went and had these last cut conversations, as I call them. And I wanted to know about other people's moments. Because I think living a really bold and authentic life, again, it's an internal job and it, it, it comes from within, but we still need community. So even those of us who are incredible introverts, there is something to connection and community and being pulled out of the cave as, a, you know, I like to call, think of my cave, it, it's important.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And at the same time, the subject matter that you were building the conversation around also have the effect of speaking to how we define ourselves mm-hmm. and how we don't define ourselves and how so often social and cultural norms, we just default to those definitions of what is good, what is bad, what is real, what is beautiful, what is ugly, mm-hmm. because that's all we know and we never really question them. And this was like a big provocation that said question the norms when it comes to your identity.
0: And I think again this was who I always was. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was something in that too of sharing it because for me it was a certain place of arrival speaking to exactly the point you just raised. I al- I was I mean it's funny because today here I am wearing a skirt but I I tend to dress much more like a tomboy my brother and I were very much, like people used to think we were identical twins when I was growing up. I didn't, I used to not care about so many of those constructs. And with the trauma that happened, I then began to outsource to what was happening around me to make me, you know, that where I thought I would feel whole. Okay, if I play this role, if I grow my, you know, I have short hair, but I grew my hair out really long early on in my marriage cuz i thought okay if i have long hair and i wear these colorful dresses i'm you know i'm fitting this mold you know now i had these you know perfect perfect reconstructed boobs and all of this stuff and so i think that there was your point is so perfect in that it it highlights the underlying piece of it which for me i was i am i am, I am and i was so at peace with the decision to be flat and so in love with my body with all of its imperfections i have so many scars and you know all stretch marks and i mean all of the stuff that gray hair i mean all of it and and it defi- it doesn't it defines me in the best of ways because it it marks all of the different points on the journey and so to to shine that and to show what I wasn't showing it because I wanted people to tell me that I looked beautiful, but it's showing this, this is who I am. And I don't care if I don't look like everyone in the magazines because I feel amazing, finally. And I've worked hard (laughs) to get to this place of loving myself. I think that using the chest in the visual way that Lisa and I have throughout the development of Last Cut it shows everyone, not just women, not just breast cancer patients, but it's like it's such a visual that goes exactly to your point that it's like no one can tell us what's normal. No one can tell us what's going to make us feel great. And I think it has as much of an impact on men as well because, I mean, certainly from the perspective of don't look, you know, don't look at a woman and think that oh, female or feminine is defined in, in one way. But also, what's happening within you, within all of us, that isn't in line with who we actually are? And how are we holding up societal constructs instead of just being ourselves and loving each other for it?
1: No, I mean, it's interesting because I consider myself a relatively open person. And you look through your Instagram feed, and there are lots of pictures of you, of different people, different women, and also a number of pictures of you bare-chested. And I was sort of paying attention to just how I reacted both in terms of like how I react to my own body, because uh-huh. there, you know, like <laughs> you're constantly like sort of liking and disliking. You're know, Like there's a checklist for all of us, sadly. But I was also really I was paying attention to how I was reacting to the photos of you, and I was like, is there something in me that's still holding onto the construct of this is how it should look? And I was like, huh, you know, we all have our stuff. Like we all, we've got you know, implicit and explicit. Bias and like preferences that may or may not have have anything to do with who we are, but just who we're told we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting as a guy also to sort of like look at the images and say, like, what is this telling me about me? Mm -hmm. And maybe work I have to do Mm -hmm. as I look out at other men and women in the world and just implicitly pass judgment in certain ways. At some point, you end up partnering with Equinox also, Mm -hmm. which I'm guessing as much as you were putting yourself out into the world. You become part of this big national campaign. You're like, yeah, <laughs> in right, I like mean, billboards, yeah, it's crazy. and it's billboards of you. For those who haven't seen it, we'll link to it in the show notes. Essentially, sitting back in a chair with a tattoo is working on your chest. How did you feel when that sort of exploded into public consciousness? Well,
0: it was funny because, and I think I mentioned this to you just in communication before we were recording. But you know, my one of the texts I got from my mom within the first week was you're not going to put yourself out there on the internet naked, are you? And I just texted her back. I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to stay true to the project because I feel as if last cut has its own life. And so I'm not doing anything just to be gratuitous, but I'm going to do what serves the project. And a casting agent for Equinox found me through the website. And when I got that email, I mean, Lisa and I joke about it all the time. I thought this is crazy. This has to be, this isn't real. And, it was real, and it was an incredible opportunity. And I feel as if my mission and theirs were—everything were, it was everything was so aligned in terms of what we were trying to communicate. And so it felt perfect from the very beginning, and I felt as if it was the opportunity to have a bigger platform for what I was trying to share, which was we can all be different and the most important thing is finding that connection within that makes you feel empowered and and beautiful and that you we get to define ourselves and you know in their their slogan is commit to something and for me so much of my healing had been committing to myself and committing to staying with the pain and the darkness until I saw it through and so there was a little bit of, I wouldn't, I, there was never any, I never had any fear around it or anything. I was really, I was so excited and, but it, it's also completely surreal too. to then, I mean, there was on Sunset Boulevard back in LA, there was a 10, 10 story high billboard of this image of my bare chest, which ironically, it's like 10 blocks from my mom's house, you know, since came around and was so proud and would drive anyone and everyone who wanted to go see it by there. but it to me it was sort of a nod from the universe of saying line up with who you are within and when you communicate that out into the world the law of attraction i do think that you then attract the the people and the opportunities that will align with with your message and help you get it out there and so the partnership with equinox was it was a gift to last cut and and to me in terms of stepping even further into what I had discovered and who I had landed in. Yeah,
1: definitely a magnifier.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it was yeah. crazy and there was so much, I mean when it actually then went up last January, there was so so much there was so much conversation around it.
1: Yeah. And because there was a video that got released at the same – was it at the same time or did that come uh
0: The video – Yeah, no, I think the video came out. Like, like right around the same time, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, I mean, even – I I didn't read the comments, but I know that people had – you know, I, I don't spend – I barely spend any time on Facebook, but they know the comments were many. And even I did a video with Style Like You and Allure in May, and same thing. And, you know, occasionally I get called Sir – because if I'm, you know, dressed in you know, jeans and a T-shirt and then the flat chest. And in that one, I talked about how I had been called sir on the way in from Newark airport. And, and so we sort of deconstructed that and the fact that breasts don't define femininity. And again, the comments, people said, well, maybe if you didn't have your hair short and this, that, and the other. And it's like, no one else has the right to comment on how any of us show up in the world, but, it, you know, but, but to be able to weather that you have to be very clear on who you are on the inside. Cause otherwise it's very easy. Cause even still, as you said, it's still a struggle. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I would be lying if I mean, I'm not perfect in that realm and I may love my body more than I ever have, but it, it was an interesting it, it was a big choice, I won't say interesting. It was a big choice to make in in the moment in my life where I was single. and so and to then navigate through the world wondering how I am perceived in 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 that realm is interesting. And many people assume I'm gay too. I mean, it's like it's funny how many people what's, what's that leap? Oh, again, I think it's how I dress. It's the short hair and then and then the chest. I don't understand it because, it, you know, again, I just think it's people put their own lens on everything. And so they make, make make assumptions.
1: As you become more public in the last two years, really, and it seems like there's power welling inside of you and, and letting its way out in the world and you're becoming a leader effectively at the same time, you know, quiet leaders. My friend Susan Kane would would say mm-hmm. like from an introverted, gentle place, but still very much out there in the world and a leader and staking your claim to a, a message and a voice, you have a daughter now. What's the conversation around who you are and what you're doing and who she is and who she sees you to now be publicly?
0: That's such a good question. And it's really a tough one to answer because it's so layered. I think that in most most days and in most respects, she sees what I'm doing and understands that it's it's important and powerful beyond just me talking about my story or being photographed. I think at times the little girl in her is like, "Whoa, my mom's half naked on a billboard!" And what do I tell my friends that you do? <laughs> you know, she's like, "What do I tell my mom?" You know, that my mom's in 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 women's empowerment. And I was like, "Perfect, that's great." You can tell them I'm an artist. I'm a writer. You know, she's ten certainly navigating what the world tells young women they should look like, feel like, dress like. So it makes for a very interesting conversation. And it's it, I think that's the the best part. And what I appreciate most is that she and I stay in the conversation around not only what I do, but her experience in the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, I feel really great that, I can't control how the mean girls at school who, you know, make fun of things. I can't control what the magazines and TV and movies tell my daughter she should look like. I can control myself and how I show up. And I know in this moment that I'm 100% being truthful to who I am. And so I feel that as a parent, having arrived in that place, at the end of the day, allows me to sleep, even though there are so many moments, as you know, as a parent, where it's like, oh my goodness, I don't wanna mess this person up. Like, what's right? Like, it's so hard and, you know, it's challenging. And so, but that that's what I believe in most. That's what I know is living by my truth and living by the truth that I feel in my body. So if at the end of the day, I don't feel some tightness in my body about what I've said or done or how I've shown up, for myself, but also for her, then I feel as if I'm role modeling to her how to be a healthy individual. And I certainly am also role modeling that we can look differently and and dress differently. And I might be embarrassing at times when I'm, you know, the one in the school assembly with the, you know, half-shaven head and no chest and, you know, kind of dressed like a boy and the tattoos and, you know, in this fairly conservative place that we live in Santa Barbara. But I also think the artist in her and the rebel in her and the individual in her appreciates it and learns from it.
1: So, I naming mean, this is a good life project. So if I offer that phrase out to you, to live a good life, what comes up?
0: I think it's very similar to what I just said. I think living a good life is first and foremost – Living according to the truth that I feel in my body, which is kind of an esoteric thing. But just if I, speaking the truth, being truthful in my relationships, if everything that I'm doing is an extension of who I am on the inside, I feel as if that's a good life. And I think that what that brings with it that makes life not only good, but great and exhilarating is that it brings connection and it brings happiness and wellness and most importantly freedom and i think that that that's the the theme of, of my podcast this season is is freedom because i think how do we tap into that for each of us and it's an individual thing but i think once when we feel free in life that feels really good mm, thank you thank you that was great
1: Hey, thanks so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we've included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share the Good Life Project Love with friends because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.